Take your Bibles. We'll go to Acts chapter 20 this morning. Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 38 together this morning. Do you believe that God has provided for his people a pattern and principles for how a church should be organized? How the leadership of the church should be structured. How it's to function. The type of leaders we're to be looking for. Or do we have the freedom to choose the best model that we can devise on our own? Do you personally believe that God has a plan? If God has provided for us a pattern, then it would be wise... It would be best for us to study that pattern and then follow it in our church today. Godly leadership is very important for the growth and health of a congregation, of God's people. We're certainly aware of how church leaders who fail can hurt scores of people both inside the church and outside of it. We understand how poor leadership in a church can damage Christ's reputation. But God's word gives us guidance and direction for how we should organize ourselves. We've now considered this pattern of plural elders leading Christ's church, leading a congregation from texts like 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, we read that this morning, and Titus chapter 1. This morning and next week, I want to consider one final passage That presents perhaps one of the clearest demonstrations of this normal pattern in the New Testament. We see this in Acts 20, 17 through 38. Now, we've told you, I've told you that our intention is to move toward this as a church. Toward implementing congregational, elder-led polity or church structure. Uh, What we're doing here this morning is presenting to you one more text from God's word that presents this for us. And then in a couple weeks at the end of February in our Sunday evening service, we'll take several weeks in a row to talk through this in more depth. And in our Sunday evening services during those times, I'll give the body the opportunity to ask questions that have occurred to you as we've looked at texts like this. So you'll get a chance to ask questions and consider what it is God's word saying to us. And I want to have the opportunity to answer your questions. So let's look at this text this morning. Look down at verse number 17. I'll begin reading there. Verse 17, God's word says to us. Now from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained or guided by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions will await me. But I do not account my life of any value 
nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that really is the whole way of salvation. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Let's ask for God's help as we consider this text together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you intend for us to see from your words. This is your word. You've written them clearly for us to understand. And I pray that we would be able to do so by the help of your spirit. Give us grace to know with wisdom and patience how to do and implement these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As part of his third missionary journey, Paul lived and ministered in the city of Ephesus for about a time of three years. This was the longest that Paul had stayed in any one of the churches that he had planted. God had used him greatly while he was there. And the church in Ephesus had been greatly shaped by his powerful ministry, as you can imagine. They knew him. They'd lived with him. He'd lived among them. He was their pastor, their brother, their friend, their fellow worker. He had already left at this point in our text. And he stopped on a layover, a short distance away from Ephesus. And he calls to these men, these elders of the Ephesian church, for one final conversation. One final message, knowing he would never see them again. So consider that context and the weight, the importance, the gravity of these final words of Paul to these beloved fellow ministers. 
This morning, we're going to consider from this text a high-level view, considering together three aspects of Paul's final message to these elders. Next week, we'll focus a little bit more on the details, the call, the character, and the care of elders, as demonstrated by Paul's example here in this text. So first, the inspiring example of a diligent shepherd. This first point is rather long, but never fear, the rest of the points are not as long. This is a rich and a very important passage. It's unique among all the other writings in Acts and the New Testament. This is the only occasion in the book of Acts where Paul is addressing other believers. The rest of his recorded speeches or sermons in Acts are given to unbelievers. So Luke has chosen to record this for a specific reason. It's important. It's also the only place in the entire New Testament where Paul addresses a group of church leaders or elders. Author Alex Strauch says of this text, Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders is a virtual manual for pastor elders. It is the only record of Paul speaking directly to church leaders. It it records his final words of exhortation and warning to these men. It provides a dramatic description of who they are and what they're called to do. It's their job description. In short, this sermon provides us with an excellent synopsis of the Christian teaching on church leadership. Every elder then should thoroughly master the content of Paul's apostolic message to these Ephesian elders. Now, before we get into some of the details of this text, we need to consider some introductory points. And at this point, after we've studied both 1 Peter 5 and Titus 1, some of these things will be something of a review for many of you. And yet, they're important for us to see again, to be convinced of. That's my goal. And then for us to seek to implement. So first, the number of elders. This passage again affirms a plurality of elders in a single church. Look again at verse 17. I want you to see this and not think this is just my conclusion. Look at your scriptures. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. This is the consistent pattern of the New Testament teaching on the church. We've talked about this before, Acts 14, 23, Paul's first missionary journey. It's Acts 13 and 14. He plants all kinds of churches with Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 23, we read, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This was their pattern. Titus 1.5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders, plural, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, shepherd the flock, singular, that is among you. James chapter 5.14, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders, Of the church, singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Now, some scholars argue against the concept of plural elders within a single church. And what they do is explain that the plural use of the word word elders in our passage like this 
is to refer to pastors of various house churches that make up the city-wide church of Ephesus. They would say that each house church had its own pastor. And then when Paul calls for these elders, he's calling for those individual pastors to come together as a group and come meet him. Now this would be like someone calling for a meeting of all the pastors of Greer. And that's how we get the idea of plurality. Well, this example or explanation on the surface seems to make sense. That's plausible, isn't it? But we have to examine whether or not this is the most faithful and reasonable understanding of this passage. So look again at verse 17. Notice that Luke doesn't refer to the churches of Ephesus, but the church singular. Look down then in verse 28, he calls the church a flock. If he's talking to multiple pastors of multiple congregations, why not call them flocks? That would make much more sense. That would be much more natural if we were to understand the word to be emphasizing that. An explanation that these are merely a group of pastors from one town is simply guesswork. It's reading into the text. It's possible But I think you have to insert some information to do that. It seems to be reading a conclusion over or on top of the text. There's no textual evidence for us to conclude that a single elder is presiding over an individual house church. One author helpfully concludes of these verses, the natural reading of this passage then indicates there's one church in Ephesus. That's what the word is, the church, and one body of elders to oversee it. The same is true nearly 40 years later when John addresses this same church and he says the church singular in Ephesus and not the churches. So what we know from Acts 20 is that a council or plurality of elders was responsible for the pastoral oversight of the church singular in Ephesus. Bible scholar and commentator Thomas Schreiner concludes the church or churches in Jerusalem in Acts had elders. According to Acts 14.23 that I just referred to, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in all the churches visited during their first journey. When a contingent of leaders visited Paul from Ephesus, they're called elders. The person who is sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders of the church. The pastoral epistles show that elders function in Ephesus and were appointed to be appointed in Crete. Every piece of evidence we have shows that elders were widespread in the early church. And he makes this clear that this is the pattern. They are mentioned by different authors, Luke and Paul and Peter and James. This isn't just the emphasis of one author. They stretch over a wide region of the Roman Greco world, from Jerusalem to Palestine, Ephesus, the whole of Asia Minor, and Crete. This is the established pattern of the entire New Testament church. So it seems both fair to the New Testament texts and wise to conclude that elders functioned as a plurality in the church since the term is always plural when it refers to church leadership. Solitary church leadership is often more open to an abuse of power. John MacArthur writes, the combined counsel of these elders and their collective wisdom assures that decisions are not self-willed or self-serving to a single individual. 
And they help us make sense or practice what we read in the wisdom literature. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22 and 24, 6 repeat this wisdom. For by wise guidance, you can wage war. And in an abundance or a multitude of counselors, there is victory. We recognize that different perspectives help to strengthen our decisions carry the load, and provide stability. Second, the titles of elders. We'll move quickly through this. In three New Testament passages, we see all three titles combined in those one text. We see them used together. Elder, overseer, pastor. They're used interchangeably for the role in the church we commonly call or use of our church, pastor. Your pastors could be called elders biblically or overseers. Or pastor is fine. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. So I exhort the elders among you to shepherd. There's that word pastor. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. In our passage, Acts 20. From Miletus, he sent to the Ephesus and called the elders to come to him. And then down in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that second title, to care for. There's pastoring again. The New American Standard and NIV translate to care for as shepherd. So they do a better job of explicitly highlighting this third term. So the point is that God intends for his people to be led by a group of elders, pastors, overseers. And that if we follow this pattern of the New Testament, they not not all necessarily have to be staff or professional pastors. There are men in this church body that are not on the pastoral staff at this time who've been equipped by God to serve the body with their gifts. With their ability to handle the word that would strengthen and diversify the leadership of our church family. So we're not just saying this is an idea in the Bible. We think practically we see this happening here in our own body. Now let's look again at the text and go to verse 18. And what we're going to see Paul demonstrate for us now as we get into more of the heart of the text is how Paul demonstrates for us a model of how leaders should lead. How leaders influence God's people by their godliness. Verse 18 says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Now Paul uses this word know in the passage five different times you yourselves know how i lived now how did they know and why is he pointing this out well the pattern that paul is establishing here is that godly leaders are to model spiritual service and maturity in front of and among those that they're to lead and paul is calling these men to remember his example before them and do likewise look down again at verse 31 He says, therefore, be alert, remembering, recall that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. He's saying, remember my example. I am modeling for you what you should be doing for your congregation. He continues in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you, I've demonstrated, I've provided an example. Paul says this, and and 
teaches this in other places. Philippians 3.17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul uses this idea of imitation six different times in his letters. And we read in Hebrews 13.7, Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider, focus on the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So here's the point that we should take from this. Don't underestimate the power of your example to influence another person toward godliness. Modeling, example, is a very important tool in the church. Paul's demonstrating that one of the greatest tools a godly leader has is his faithful example. His entire message to these elders is to present to them a model to follow that they will model then before their congregations. And this isn't just for pastors and would-be elders. This is for all of God's people. This is just what godliness, spiritual maturity looks like. And Paul is saying, like he says in other places, imitate me as I follow Christ. He's not telling us that he's perfect. He's saying, as I continue to follow Christ, follow that example that you see in me. The legendary basketball coach, John Wooden, confirms the power of example when he wrote, the most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. This is a man who led and molded many young men for many years. And his conclusion after that time was that the most powerful leadership tool available to you is your personal example. We need to continue to have godly men and women in our church family that model what it means to walk with God. Other people are paying attention to your life and your conversation, and they should And that is a powerful opportunity for you to be an influence in the hands of your God. Husbands and fathers, so often we lean on our tools of persuasion. Maybe our volume, maybe the length of our lecture. To try to correct and shape and lead our children and families. But what are you teaching them by your example? What are you most preoccupied by? Will you be surprised that your children will be preoccupied by those things as well? What are they picking up from your habits, your passions, your time commitments? Mom, can I encourage you that your godly example is often a more powerful tool over time for shaping your children than a good lecture or perfect discipline practices? Those tools matter, but keep your example in mind. Do your kids see you more devoted to Instagram, home decor, or the latest issue that you're complaining about over and over again? Or do they see you eager to be in the word, talking about what God is doing in your life and the lives of fellow believers? What passions are you modeling before them? Grandparents, what do you think your children notice most about you? You're upset about the direction of our country? 
Certainly, that's something to be concerned about. But is that what you want them to be passionate about, following your example? What influence are you having by your example? Don't underestimate it. It's a gift from God. It's a powerful tool for influence. Church member, how are you influencing your life group? Especially the younger ones who are quietly observing what's happening. Your faithfulness to the group. The focus of your prayer requests. Are they about you or about how you want to grow? Are they focused on your interest in the word? Even older siblings. Your example is powerful in your family as well. Now perhaps this is a very convicting thought for you. As it has been for me this week. Paul's example of godliness, tireless, humble service in this text has been a rebuke to me again and again this week. This man's life is amazing as he's committing all of himself to God. And if you recognize in this moment an area of your life where you've not been a godly example, don't push back and defend yourself. Repent. Seek God's strength to change Ask your family and friends to forgive you if necessary. Ask your children to to forgive you. And ask them to help keep you accountable as you grow. Just think of it. Humble repentance before them is a brand new opportunity to set a godly, Christ-exalting example. We should be modeling humble repentance. Don't underestimate the extraordinary power of your personal example to influence and inspire other people positively for God. You're more influential than you realize. You have more influence than you realize. So what kind of example are you providing to others? Peter says to elders in 1 Peter 5, 3, the same thought, there to be examples to the flock. Do you see why you need to pray for your pastor's growth and godliness? We need your prayers. We're not everything God wants us to be yet. Are you praying? Their examples, pastor's examples, are very important for the health of this body. Do you see why in this pattern that Paul, that the Holy Spirit is saying we need to seek out men whose lives are a model of spiritual maturity so that we will follow and be influenced by those who are consistently, faithfully walking after God, faithfully teaching his word carefully. You consider then another aspect of Paul's example. Look back now again at verse 19. Paul says he was serving the Lord with all humility. And with tears and with trials. He'd lived and served among them for three years. He's been away ministering to other churches now that he had planted for about a year and a half. And now, in these last words to them, what does he want them to remember? There's been a time gap, and he's saying, I want you to remember certain things. Certainly, in three years, lots has probably happened among them. But he says, I want you to remember a few very important things. What does he call to their minds? He wants them to remember his humble, faithful, tireless service for Christ. The word for serving here is the word for serving as a slave, a bond servant. 
It's the exact same word we saw Paul use of himself in Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant or bond slave of God. One who is under full authority and control of God. One who does the bidding and will of his God. And an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This is how Paul continues to view view himself and his service to God all throughout his ministry. He's modeling that his life and his priorities are not his own. He's modeling that he belongs to God, all of him. Not just parts, all of him. And he says, I serve the Lord with all humility. Now, can I tell you just first from biblical conviction, from seeing passages like this, from looking at Christ's example, and then secondly, from personal experience, that nothing ruins service to God and his people like pride, like self-promotion. Church family, this is what our relationship with God and one another should be characterized by. Humble service. It's perhaps one of the chief characteristics we're to be looking for in those who would be leaders among us. Which among us is modeling humility and service? Service is humility in action. It's God submitting service. There should not ever be a task that's beneath an elder. That doesn't mean they're supposed to do every task. We know in Acts 6 that they're supposed to be focused on certain things. But he should be willing to serve in any way that the body is called to serve in. But that also applies to all the members. There should not ever be a task that is beneath a member of the body. Humility in in service is patient and kind. And it's content to find others to invest in. Even if nobody ever recognizes your gifts or your service. Even if all of that goes unrecognized and unseen. Paul puts it succinctly in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as servants, bond slaves for Jesus' sake. What a verse. That would be great for us to memorize and meditate on regularly. Think if we embrace that within our own families. I'm not here in my family to serve, but to be, not to be served rather, but to serve. How often is our service for Christ spoiled by our selfishness at times? Our desire for recognition and influence. How often are we frustrated as leaders when people get in the way? How foolish. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, we read, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. What he's saying is leadership in the church and leadership in the world don't have much in common at all. These are contrasted. They're not the same thing. Their great ones exercise authority over them. They know the best plans. They know the right way to go, and they tell everybody that. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great, and that means great in God's eyes, among you must be your slave. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he gives us the gospel. He says, for even the son of man, the king over all kings, came not to be served, but to serve. Even to giving his life a ransom for many. Church family, I am so grateful for the many wonderful examples of service among our church family. I am seeing this grow among our body by leaps and bounds. I'm so encouraged by even the different groups that are forming to serve needs without any attention, without any need for recognition. They take care of needs and nobody might ever know about it. I'm thrilled to see what God is doing. And yet, this is still a struggle for us at times, isn't it? We think we know the best way to do something. And if people would just listen to me, it would be done better. Maybe. Maybe God hasn't given you the time, that this time for a place of influence yet. Maybe influence by faithful service. Faithful, humble service. We do want others to see our gifts and be grateful for what we contribute. And yet, I'm so grateful for the many godly believers in our body who happily, contentedly serve Christ and his people and never expect or demand recognition or greater position of influence. Now, certainly, when we recognize it, we need to encourage and praise and tell each other how thankful we are for faithful service. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be a grateful people and expressing that to one another. But that's not why we serve. Faithful, humble, sacrificial service pleases our Lord and makes our body function well. Second, the imminent danger of ambitious wolves. Look down again at verse 28. Paul continues, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now, these are two commands, the only two commands found in this entire address. They're found in these four verses. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock and be alert. In the ancient Near East, wolves were a common and constant danger for the many shepherds and their flocks that were grazing on the hillside. Sheep are a defenseless prey. They have no natural ability to defend themselves. And they're foolish. When they're scared, they run all over the place. They'll even run right into the danger. So they need shepherds. Shepherds failing to pay careful attention will lose their sheep to these predators, to these dangers. And Paul, both like Peter and Jesus, used this same metaphor of shepherds and sheep to teach us of our need for godly servant leaders who help protect God's people from false teachers and their teaching. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus warns against false teachers who he says, come to you in sheep's clothing. They're deceptive. They're hard to spot. But are inwardly ravenous wolves. So shepherds are responsible to both feed God's people with his word. That's one of the ways he helps them be defended. 
and he protects them from straying into error. Paul puts it this way to Titus, hold firm to the trustworthy word so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. There's danger in the form of false teaching for God's people outside of the church. But the sobering truth stated here is that there will even arise from within the church false teachers who lead God's people astray. That is sobering. How do we know who they are? Are they holding firm to the trustworthy word? Are they arrogant men seeking position for themselves? Arrogant women who are raising themselves up to gain influence for their own purposes? God's provision for the safety of a sheep are well-trained men who know God's word and courageously both teach the truth and refute error. Third, the incredible value of God's sheep. There's much encouragement found in verse 28 of our text. What we see is God's overwhelming love and his settled conviction and constant pursuit and care of his people. Look again at verse 28. And as we read it again, I want you to see if you can locate the role of each member of the Trinity in this verse. Verse 28 says again, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The oversight and care of the church ultimately rests with God, the triune God himself. He's committed to care for it. His church is so important to him that we're told that all three members are sharing in this oversight responsibility, even as it's being delegated to under-shepherds. The church belongs to our God. No elder or member has the right to dictate to God what the church should look like and be like. We all fall under his authority and ownership of this body. And recognizing that authority humbles us, it settles us, it gives us a contentment, and it helps us to trust him. Certainly, We have responsibilities in finding new leaders. But it says here that the Holy Spirit is the one who equips and provides leaders for his church. We'll talk about how we recognize those gifts that the Holy Spirit has given at a later time. But here Paul is saying oversight of the body belongs to the Spirit as well as the Father. And then finally, the son's blood was shed as the price required to purchase each one of God's sheep. The language here is a little bit confusing, but what we know throughout the rest of the New Testament is God purchased the body, the the church, with the spilling of his son's own blood. That's what we celebrate. That's what makes us God's people as we come to the Lord's table again this morning. And it demonstrates for us the incredible value that God places on a church family like ours. Think about how informative that is to us. Churches are filled with sinners, sheep that aren't always pleasant or easy to deal with. We at times have a hard time getting along with each other. As with all families, we develop jealousies, insecurities, conflict among ourselves, and yet this verse tells us how we're to view each other, both from a leadership perspective and from a member's perspective. When we recognize that this is his church, it humbles us. 
It causes us to be less zealous to exert our will for the church. It urges us to faithfully invest in and build up and serve a group of people for whom Jesus spilled his blood. If he can love inconsistent, weak sinners, then I can too. John Stott asks in summary, if the three persons of the Trinity are thus committed to the care and welfare of God's people, should we not be also? How's this verse to shape and refine your view of your brothers and sisters in this body? Even the ones that you have a hard time getting along with. Richard Baxter wrote convictingly of this verse to pastors all the way back in 1656. Listen to what he writes. Can you not hear Christ saying, did I die for these people? And will you then refuse to look after them? Were they worth my blood? And they're not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost? And will you refuse to go next door or to the next street or to the next village to seek them? How small is your labor compared to mine? I debased myself to do this, but it is your honor to be so employed. Have I done and suffered so much for their salvation and you refuse that little that lies upon your hands? When God's people grasp the overwhelming, eternal value of God's flock, the unimaginable price that he paid to make us one body, we should be inspired to commit our lives to the growth, the health, the care of our church, of the living God. As Isaac Watts wrote, love so amazing, so divine, so uniquely like our triune God, it demands my soul, my life, my all. What more valuable could I invest my life in than his own blood-bought people? This passage teaches us that we're to recognize that faithful elders are responsible for the pastoral oversight of God's own blood-bought church. I hope that conviction is deepening within you as you look at a passage like this. In this unique passage, Paul's admonishing these elders of the church of Ephesus to follow the pattern that he set, he's modeled before them. This is what faithful service in a local congregation looks like. This is spiritually mature leadership. If we understand the weight and responsibility of serving and leading God's people, we'll recognize the need for other godly men to help share and bear this load. God's people are incomprehensibly valuable to him. And we want to follow the pattern that God has set in order to faithfully care for his people for his glory. Should we not lean into the pattern he's taken the time to demonstrate before us in his word? Three very quick applications. First, diligently pray for your shepherds to be carefully watching over their own lives and the lives of God's people. Can you see from this text how needy, how dependent your leaders must be before God? This is an awesome responsibility it is beyond any man it reminds me of the command to husbands love your wife like christ loves the church how do i live up to that 
by being dependent day after day on his grace. This is a humbling text for all of us. It's a passage we need to meditate on and study well. Your pastors need prayer if we're going to grow as God intends. Will you pray for our spiritual growth and for continued development in how we care for this church family? We've seen growth over time. We need more. We need to continue in that direction. Secondly, diligently pray for your church family to humbly follow God's shepherds. Listen, following human leaders is not easy. We're put in a vulnerable place to follow sinners, human sinners. It's a great risk because human leaders so often are not good examples. So often they're not humble leaders. They're weak and finite and often disappointing. They're still sinners. And yet God has established that we together are to support and encourage the spiritual leaders God has provided us. As a body, we need prayer not to put our final confidence in the strength of mere men, but in this word from God and the pattern he establishes here. It's like all patterns of leadership we see in our lives, from parents to husbands to church leaders. We don't lead because we're perfect leaders. We lead because this is authority delegated to us from God. And we lead based on his grace because he's leading us. That again is what's different between the world and God's people. We lead in humility and dependence and service. Not because we want to have a say or get our will done or tell people how smart we are. Even the best human leaders are inconsistent and still sinners. So we look to the great shepherd of the sheep. The head of this body the Lord of this church and cast our dependence on him again. We know our triune God loves us, so we follow his design and trust him to help us get up again when we fail and give him all the credit when we see true spiritual fruit. Lastly, diligently pray for unity and wisdom among our church family as we seek to implement passages like this. What we have publicly stated as our desire is to follow what we see as the pattern of the New Testament. There are lots of details to work out. There are things that we have not experienced in our leadership before. We need God's help. And if we would honor him, we will get on our knees and on our faces before God and beg him to be what God wants us to be. No organized pattern of leadership is perfect It doesn't fix all problems because the problems are in our hearts. But if we follow God's patterns, we can expect him to bless us, can't we? As we seek to work through the details of implementing a plurality of elders in our own body throughout this year, will we commit ourselves to prayer? This passage demonstrates the pattern that God provides is for our good and for our growth. So may we faithfully seek his face to guide us as we do our best to apply his word to how we organize and lead the flock and how we follow our leaders. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we are grateful this morning. Grateful for your word, for our triune God, For the Holy Spirit who gives us guidance, who speaks, 
who equips us with leaders, who helps us to know the truth and obey it. We're thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ, for a reminder that we are your people bought with your blood. How dare we despise what you have died for? And yet, Lord, that's our common response when a brother or sister in the body disappoints us or hurts us or frustrates us or a leader fails to lead as we expect. God, give us grace to adopt your view of your people. Help us to grow in conviction and independence that you know what's best for us. Help us to love you more and trust you, even in places where we have little experience or we have bad experiences in our past or we're just uncertain of change. Give us grace to trust you, to do what we believe is right in following the pattern we see. Now as we turn our hearts to this time where we remember your sacrifice for us, may we receive the grace that you intend this remembrance to be. May we pause in our minds and be drawn again to see and hear and taste and sense a Savior who loved us so much that he would die for us. May we see and know your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.